This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. And I realized that this was this was the next problem I wanted to tackle. It was so huge and nobody was really talking about it at the time that but as I started talking to friends and family members I just saw how many patients were being impacted and I remember just joining all these Facebook groups and being like, "Wow, this is a huge huge thing and it's just a silent epidemic happening." Welcome to FemPower Health. This is Georgie. Today marks the beginning of an insightful four-part series dedicated to unraveling the complexities of endometriosis and pelvic pain. In this opening episode, we zero in on the alarming shortage of OBGYNs and the widespread lack of training in endometriosis among primary care providers. Our special guest, Margaret Melville, founder of Lassa Health, shares her personal struggle with getting diagnosed with endometriosis, a battle she largely navigated on her own. Through Margaret's story and our discussion, we highlight the critical importance of early diagnosis in managing endometriosis effectively, a condition that, if left unchecked, can escalate into chronic pain and organ loss. We also tackle common misconceptions and warn against false cures and products that prey on those seeking relief. This episode is not only a call to action for clinicians to educate themselves and their patients about endometriosis, but also a guide for patients on how to advocate for themselves by seeking out supportive healthcare professionals and exploring all treatment options. And please remember, the views expressed in this series are those of our guests and should not replace professional medical advice. We encourage our listeners to consult with their doctors to find what's best for their unique situation. Our hope is that this series will enlighten and support you on your journey with endometriosis. So let's get started. So Margaret, why don't you talk to us first about your own journey with endometriosis, with what you're comfortable sharing about it? Because I think the personal stories are really what leads so much of so many of us to to make an impact in women's health. So so tell us your own journey. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So I have bowel endometriosis, and I also have celiac disease. And so, you know, I always had stomach issues and painful periods and, and so much so many symptoms going on um, that were all very confusing for the doctors to figure out because that to them it seemed like the pain was jumping around all over my abdomen. So, uh, you know, obviously they told me that was fine and to just relax and it's just stress or IBS. Um, and ultimately it took about 10 years to get diagnosed and about 25 doctors when I went back and added it all up. So I got diagnosed with celiac disease about two years ago and then endometriosis in January. I had my first surgery. Wow. How did it go? It went well. I mean, I think that to me, the biggest thing is that, you know, to have that definitive diagnosis, right? To actually have all those years of, of feeling 
like I was going crazy, validated to say there is a cause of the, there's a, there's a cause, there's a reason why you're in this pain. And then I think that there's always this hope that surgery is going to completely fix everything. And that rarely happens. Um, And so, you know, then post-surgery, it's about figuring out pelvic floor therapy and lifestyle changes and medications and and figuring out long-term how how are you going to manage the symptoms. You know, so many women are struggling, generally speaking, and having a hard time getting answers. And many of these women, it turns out, do have endometriosis. And so I'm so curious, like, what was your life like as you were going through this journey? Like, what were your symptoms and why were doctors not pointing to endometriosis? And well, you also had the complication of also celiac disease. Um, So I'd love to just better understand that because I think everyone has similar but different journeys. And I think hearing those stories are always so helpful. So maybe you can tell a little bit more about that. You know, I think, you know, you hear a lot of stories of endo and people have such a spectrum of of symptoms. So like I'm by far not the most severe case of endo I've heard. Um, but I do think it's important to, you know, share many perspectives because endo can present in so many different ways. Um, so, so for me, um, you know, I think the biggest thing that held me back from a diagnosis is uh, just a stigma about period pain and it being normalized. So, you know, having sisters and mom who also had had painful periods, you know, that that was just normal, right? Like it was normal to maybe have to miss school in your period, or it was normal um, having friends who had really severe periods, way worse than mine, you know, made me feel like, oh, mine aren't that bad. And so it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I even brought it up to a doctor and no doctor had really asked me about it. Or if they did, I didn't really know what like was normal and what wasn't normal. So I think that's a a huge thing that holds patients back is not knowing when to talk to their doctor. And then the second piece is when I did first bring it up to a doctor, I didn't know how to bring it up to the doctor. So I remember I was really nervous. And at the end of the appointment, right when they were about to leave, I was just like, hey, by the way, like, my periods are pretty bad. Is that normal? Is that fine? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, that's totally fine. And then left the room. And so, you know, not really dedicating an entire appointment to discuss it, minimizing it myself. Um, And I really think that like, it would have been differently received if I had said, hey, I want to have an appointment discussing this topic. I am missing school. I have to take ibuprofen every day. I am nauseous, you know, really outlining exactly how it's impacting my life. But I didn't really have the language or the knowledge of what was normal, what wasn't to, to have that conversation with my doctor until I was much older. Endo is so interesting, right? Because you know, we do normalize pain. So it's like, how do we talk about it? And, and generally with a lot of these women's health topics, we're not really taught much of anything. And it's like, how do you describe something and which do you need to describe, which is normal, which is not. And like, for example, I recently posted on my social media, um, it was actually a repost of an OBGYN who had put into visuals what too much period blood looks like and it like so many people were sharing it because people are like I didn't know I didn't know I mean it's just it's amazing how little how little we know um yeah exactly because where where would we learn that like and so many things are common but that doesn't mean they're normal and that doesn't mean there aren't things that can help just because it's common 
So it, it's definitely tricky. And, you know, I want to be careful that like, I'm not blaming the patient. Absolutely. Like I, it's, you know, like, but what we need is better tools to help facilitate that patient provider communication. Doctors have such uh, busy schedules and short appointment times that it's just really if you do end up getting diagnosed, like at a young age, and you have an amazing doctor that really took the time to listen to you and, and took the time out of their day to sit with you and go through all your symptoms. And, and that just isn't what normally happens. And so that's why, you know, I believe we need tools to help doctors be able to do this more effectively and facilitate that communication between patients and providers. So tell us now your professional background, because now this all ties into you know, some things that you're trying to do to help make changes in the endometriosis space. And so now it's kind of come full circle where you're merging your knowledge and your experience. So, so tell us about your professional background. Yeah, so I, I work in global health innovation. So I worked with USAID during the height of COVID about managing pandemics. I worked, started a medical device company where we developed a neonatal ventilator for low and middle income countries. So I've, you know, traveled all around the world looking at how we can make healthcare more affordable, more accessible. Um, And along this way, I was having my own health problems. And so, you know, when I was you know, during my master's, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next and kind of at the accumulation of really severe symptoms and finally starting to get some insights into what could be causing it. And I realized that this was this was the next problem I wanted to tackle. It was so huge and nobody was really talking about it at the time that um, but as I started talking to friends and family members, I just saw how many patients were being impacted. And I remember just joining all these Facebook groups and being like, wow, this is a huge huge thing and it's just a silent epidemic happening yeah no absolutely how did you finally get to the diagnosis because you really had to do a lot of digging to finally be able to get the right information and again celiac and endo like whew, that's right i mean because i could I, honestly i could see getting diagnosed with celiac and then people being like nope okay that's it it's just the celiac because of the symptoms right so I I ended up getting put on continuous birth control for, for most of my 20s, and that was able to manage a lot of the pain. And so I wasn't, for, for a while, I wasn't actively like looking for a diagnosis. I was, the pain was manageable. But um, during my master's, I actually caught COVID, and that really exacerbated endo, celiac, everything. And I was just in an excruciating amount of pain every day. And um, I yeah, I went to the emergency room, I went to primary care, I went to OB, I went, you know, just going to all these doctors trying to figure out what was the cause of it, what was going on. Um, and this was the same time I actually, you know, I was doing my master's, I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And just having these doctors not believe me, not take my pain seriously, dismiss my pain, um, opened me up onto that topic initially. And so I decided I was going to do something in, in women's health in you know, how can we use AI to help help patients get a diagnosis, help help doctors take patient symptoms more seriously. And we were trying to decide, okay, well, we can't boil the ocean. We can't tackle every condition at once. So what condition should we start with? And we ended up picking endometriosis after doing a market analysis and seeing that 
um, it, it was a really just a large patient population and a great place to start. Um, so we decided we were going to focus on endometriosis. And I had a couple friends with endo. So I did some interviews with them. And then ultimately that year, I did about 100 interviews with endometriosis patients. And again, at this time, I did not think I had endometriosis. Um, but I just kept hearing these stories again and again and hearing symptoms that sounded just like mine. Oh my I was gosh. like, okay, wait, I think I might actually have endometriosis too. Um, and I, I told that to a couple doctors. They said no. Um, and then, like you like you mentioned, that was when I got diagnosed with celiac, which was just happenstance because my little sister got diagnosed. So I asked my GI, I'm like, could I have celiac? And he was like, no, no, you don't have celiac. And I was like, can we, can we just run a blood test just to see? Ran a blood test. It was positive. And he was like, it's a false positive. You don't have celiac. Oh. I was like, well, can we do an endoscopy to confirm? And he was like, okay. So we did an endoscopy and he came after and I was like, how did it look? He's like, it looked totally fine. You don't have celiac. And I was like, well, did you take biopsies? Can we run them to the lab just to be sure? He was like, yeah, we can, but like, you definitely don't have it. Everything looked fine. And then the lab biopsies came back positive and I was like, I had it. Um, and then, like you said, once I got diagnosed with celiac, it became really difficult to anyone for anyone to believe I had another condition because so often there's this framework of like you're trying to find the underlying cause and then you find a cause and you stop looking for causes. But so often patients have multiple conditions. So I had to keep finding doctors, fighting, um, found an endometriosis specialist in my area, scheduled a surgery with them and got diagnosed. So the only doctor to ever think I had endo was my surgeon. Like what blows my mind, because I didn't know this part of your celiac story is, you know, I, I've, I interviewed Alice Bast of Beyond Celiac and, you know, I understood it's pretty simple. There's a blood test and you have it or you don't. And the fact that you had to advocate for yourself and the fact that you knew because I would never have known if I were in your shoes I would have said oh blood test is negative I mean I might have pushed but I would never never have known get the endoscopy you know what did you take the blood test was positive positive and you still knew to continue the advocacy like I don't think and you've been in healthcare and this is the other thing I'm noticing is if you're in healthcare the fight I'm in healthcare too the fight that I had to have to be able to figure out what was going on with me was crazy. And why I actually started Fed Power Health is I'm like, I'm in healthcare and this was impossible. What about people who aren't? I know. Yeah, I, I always say like if, you know, if it was this hard for me to get diagnosed, I don't know how anyone else ever gets diagnosed because yeah, it was, it was a fight. I remember the week before my endometriosis surgery, um, I had a GI appointment and mentioned to them, hey, I think you know, I'm having all these symptoms still. I think I have endometriosis. I'm going to have a surgery. And they were like, no, don't do it. That's going to be a complete waste. You definitely don't have endometriosis. And I was like, well, how many patients with endometriosis have you treated? And they're like, no, we haven't seen any. Like, it's super rare. Like, there's no chance you have it. And I was like, you know what? Like, I, I really don't think that my symptoms are explained by IBS. And I really think it aligns with endo. I was trying to explain why. Um, and he was like, well, like, do the surgery if you want to, like, let us know what happens. And so I came back after my surgery and brought my pictures. And I was so excited to be like, look, endometriosis is growing on my rectum and my sigmoid colon. Like, this is this is what was causing the pain. Um, and they wouldn't even look at the pictures. They were like, oh, endometriosis, that, that's not really in our purview. You should see OB for that. I'm like, But it was growing on my GI tract. So, like, I brought my pictures to show you, like, so that – 
you know, you, I want to know what this means for my GI tract. Like, am I going to need a bowel resection one day? Like, what can I do? I had all these questions and they wouldn't even look at the pictures. How did you know what to ask when you were dealing with the celiac part around continuous testing for them to finally believe you? Like, how did, what did you research? How did you know so that others may may learn from I read medical journals like I I read the clinical guidelines like I read the publications from these associations about like you know for each condition there is a clinical guideline for what are the steps for a diagnosis what are the blood test values that mean it's positive or negative what are the next steps um and so I really just try to read it all and educate myself. And it's not realistic for patients to have to read medical journals. They're so dense and hard to read. Um, so that's why with with Endo, like we put together our 12-week our endometriosis course that's free on our app that walks through all the medical journals that I read when getting my diagnosis, but putting them at an eighth grade reading level right. so that they're easy to understand and approachable. And you can just pull out the parts that are really relevant for you when it comes to making a, an informed decision. Okay. No, that, thank you very much for, for sharing that because I agree with you. We, we need to simplify the language. So, okay, so now let's go to, to Lassa Health. So you, we've now given the, the history and I'm sure there'll be more things that come up as we continue to chat, but you had this professional experience. You've done this market analysis. You used your 100 plus interviews to one, learn more about what you wanted to do, but two, diagnose yourself. And so, so tell us what led to the, like what you learned from those interviews that got you to build Lassa Health. Like what was it that said, okay, this is where the gap is. Oh my gosh. Like, I think I left the interviews just more confused than I started okay. because it is such a complex and multifaceted problem, right? There's not one easy thing that's going to fix everything. Um, but the the two things that I really anchored on were problems with differential diagnosis and problems with informed consent. And so that's what I've really built the platform on. So differential diagnosis, that's that's really about distinguishing between symptoms that have uh, conditions that have really similar symptoms. And so, so often, you know, I would hear stories of a patient who goes to a doctor and says, the doctor says, oh, this is pelvic inflammatory disease, or oh, this is IBS. And the doctor's not wrong per se, like a patient with those same symptoms might have pelvic inflammatory disease or might have IBS. Like there are a lot of conditions that are really similar. So a doctor is, is, making an informed recommendation based on the symptoms that they're seeing. But the problem was that they were not thoroughly looking at what the other things might be and eliminating those before giving a diagnosis. And then the issue of informed consent becomes about doctors were not giving patients thorough enough information about their health and their options. Um, and you know, patients obviously get almost no training or resources about their health. So patients were being told like, hey, this medication is going to help you or cure you, and then ending up with devastating side effects that were never disclosed to them. Or patients would have a surgery thinking it's going to cure everything. And then they're so frustrated, like, why are my symptoms back in three months? So we want there to be an easy solution, but there isn't. There just isn't. Because of that, we really need to have clear honest conversations with patients about here are your options, here are the pros and cons, here are the risks. Let's figure out a plan that works best for you and putting you in control of, of deciding which, which path you want to take. And 
So tell us where you are with this now. Like what, what have you decided? Cause I mean, it, it completely makes sense. And, and by the way, I just have to say one thing about informed consent. I have heard many a story about women getting hysterectomies without knowing that that was going to be happening to them. And this is not necessarily just oh in, um, related just to endo. It's in many other situations, but it's like, wait, wait, what? So I actually have a friend who is getting an IUD removed because it is like stuck in tissue. <laughs> and um, her husband is a doctor. I said to her, I'm like, can I just tell you something? I'm not trying to scare you, but I have heard <laughs> that doctors will go in and if they see something that they believe requires a hysterectomy, which I know ACOG, it's not published guidelines, which is frustrating. It may be now, but the last time I looked, it wasn't where they're saying like, let's not automatically just do hysterectomies. Like let's try everything else first. Cause they also felt they were being done too often. But nonetheless, I told her, I'm like, look, I'm, I've been hearing enough of these stories where I just at least want to tell you that before you do this surgery, that you specify the answer is no, <laughs> or like they have to go get your husband, you know, and have him, have him like have a discussion with them. And she actually was like, I'd rather just keep the IUD in there and leave it stuck because I don't want a hysterectomy. So anyways, I just, I just wanted to add that as like, I think one of the wow. scariest Anyhow, so, uh, you know, I love that you're looking at both of those aspects. So now how have you put this into life? Great question. So um, the way our platform works is we really start from the first appointment with a clinician. So we're building machine learning algorithms that screen patients' medical histories for these common conditions that are overlooked. That piece is being tested and it's not like actively available to the public yet, um, but hopefully we'll be you know, end of next year is kind of the timeline we're working towards. Um, and so this is a really powerful tool for screening for not just endometriosis, but that full differential diagnosis. So all of the other conditions that have really similar symptoms to help a doctor understand uh, what the most likely causes, what other things they should check are and what the right next steps are for diagnosis. Um, and then the second piece we have is our uh, patient resources and patient engagement. So I really am of the belief that these conditions should be managed like any other chronic disease. Um, my experience with my surgeon was I had a two-week follow-up and then never heard from him again. And I think that's kind of the common scenario, right? This is treated as not no one is managing and taking on the, the management long-term for these patients. So that's what our platform is doing, is giving a place where patients can track their symptoms, can learn about different treatment options, get reliable, trustworthy information, and then have the um, results, reports being sent back to their doctor so that the doctor can make updates to their treatment plan and monitor their patient for an ongoing basis. So that second piece is live. The, the patient app is free for patients to use, and then we work with doctors to uh, have them offer this to their patients and so that they can send reports um, and review how each of their patients are doing post-surgery or post-treatment. Uh, what goes into building something like this? First, I will say when I first read about Lassa Health and my understanding was you're trying to get patients at the point of care and through the EMR systems that doctors are already leveraging when they're working with um, patients and updating reports and things like that. And so I thought it was brilliant because having interviewed so many clinicians, you know, being a consultant in healthcare and hearing 
so many of the gaps and like the way we're really going to make change is when the women go to the doctor and changing what happens at that appointment. And because the key theme has been, we need that appointment to go well. There are so many challenges to making this happen. From a from a technology standpoint, you have HIPAA regulations and data security and encryption, patient privacy. Like you know, that's so important, especially like with all the data breaches happening with a lot of period tracking apps and with Roe v. Wade. And there, it's it's a really important time to have your technology be super solid. And then the other piece is that the the technology that the doctors are using these electronic health records. I don't think patients or like normal public can understand how dysfunctional the software is. Like it is so clunky, so difficult to use, so difficult to integrate into. It's just a mess. Like it's a decade or more behind like the rest of the technology the world, (laughs) the US uses. Um, And so then as our platform is trying to integrate with these platforms, it's just, it's a beast. But that is nothing compared to the issues when it comes to actually making societal change, right? You have um, bias and you have years of things being done a certain way that we're fighting against. And so um, getting doctors and healthcare administrators who are so busy and have so many things paying their time to, to care about pelvic pain and care about changing the way things are done at their hospital or clinic to improve care for pelvic pain patients, that is a, a monumental hurdle. And it takes it takes a, a collective effort of from advocacy from patients to physician champions who really care and are pushing for this to be implemented at their health system. Um, it's a it, it's moving a moving a mountain, <laughs> but I think it, it needs to be done. And I think bringing a community together and having a clear solution that's going to make a difference for the next generation. Like that's what keeps me motivated to keep pushing through. Right. And, and so right now you're focused on, I am a patient, I come in with pelvic pain and then seamlessly your tool would be integrated into the electronic medical record and they would be asking questions of the patient And does the Mm -hmm. patient also get to enter information in on their side as well so that there's collective? Okay. Yep, exactly. So both proactively asking questions to the patient so that we can make sure we have the right information um, and then giving the patient a place to share, giving them a place to give perspective about what their goals are. That's the platform. But I think when I talk about this, I think it's really important to talk about how Sometimes as patients, when we've had bad experience with clinicians, it's easy to villainize doctors and say, ah, the doctors, they're not doing good enough. They're not doing enough. And I just don't think that's true. Like the doctors I've talked with are, they really got into medicine to help people and were met with a really broken system that is not giving them enough time to spend with patients. Like they want to be able to make these diagnoses. They want to be able to help these patients and they're not given the resources to, and they're not giving the training to. Um, And so, you know, that's what our goal is, is to to be able to bridge that gap and allow doctors to be the doctors that they want to be, um, to be able to have patients have this really personalized experience and have uh, a quicker diagnosis and have ongoing care and monitoring, um, but doing that in a way that uh, is going to be effective and effective use of their time. No, I agree with you. And 
what I have learned is your incentive compensation and your organization structure drives behavior. And it's not like people wake up and say, this is what I'm going to do because this is how I'm paid. It's like a subconscious thing that just happens. It's this very subconscious behavior that happens. But like, you know, I've seen examples where, um, you know, obviously clinicians will often be bonused based on patient satisfaction. And so as a human, it's like, well, if the if I try to help the patient, they're gonna argue with me what might happen with how I'm perceived, right? There, There's also um, certain appointments can be reimbursed more um, if there's a prescription given. <laughs> So like it's it's even just the reimbursement models of healthcare, and this is not necessarily just specific to endo or anything, but just generally speaking, of just how messed up our system is. They're almost incentivized to to like not help us be proactively healthy. And and again, it's I want to be clear, it's so subconscious. It is not like they wake up and how should I treat said patient so that I can get paid. It is just a healthcare-wide behavior that happens, which is why you see a lot of doctors are cash paying now because they're like, I can't deal with this. I really want to help patients. So it's just a real bind. It's it's such a mess. <laughs> and I think I think like you're saying, so many doctors go cash pay because they want to help patients, but then you have only patients who have disposable income are, are getting the help. And so, you know, but I think that's why I see the potential oh, for yeah. a lot of these AI tools to help reduce the cost of providing this higher quality care because, you know, we just don't have enough doctors. <laughs> we don't have enough doctors and there aren't the right incentives to do it um, the way the system's set up right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you've had success in, um, in getting your tool tested with clinicians. Do you want to share it all? Like, how's that going and, and what you're learning? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think there's always a concern from clinicians like that, you know, AI and machine learning, these are new tools for them and they don't have any training in these tools at all. Um, and I hear a lot of doctors kind of being concerned about like AI replacing doctors because you'll see these like publications about chat GPT, like, you know, performing better than a doctor. And those are just, you know, they're all just sensationalized. Um, and so you know, what I like to say is that like doctors who use AI are going to have better outcomes than doctors who do not use AI. AI is never going to replace doctors, but it is going to significantly improve the quality of care for patients. And that's, that's already been happening. Like we've had AI tools for so long. It's just become a little bit more mainstream and talked about right now. Um, so, you know, that's, I think that's always the first conversation is like assessing, like what's the doctor's comfort level with technology. And if they have no are not comfortable with technology, they're not going to be our early adopters, right? Like they're not going to be the ones who are the first to try this and the first to put this into their clinic. And that's totally fine. Like what we're looking for is the doctors who want to be on the cutting edge of technology, who want to deliver a higher standard of care and really push the boundaries. So that's what I always look for is, is that type of doctor who's really excited about what we're doing. Um, and then once we're able to publish some studies together and validate our model, then we can work on getting it more mainstream and into a broader sample of doctors. Right. So what I'd love to do is talk about the context of having decision-making tools at the point of care, but knowing that with endo, it's not always so easy to diagnose. And so can you talk about that path? Because 
one, and, and, you know, I'm doing an episode series on endo because it is such a, um, an important topic that impacts so many people. And yet, because there's still so much to be understood about endo, there's kind of this very intense world of discussion, um, around, you know, diagnosing it and treating it. And, you know, right now in the, in the innovation world, there's people that are tackling diagnostics for endometriosis. So I guess just, just given that, where do you see the value of that point of care? And I'm not asking because I literally don't know, but I think it's just important <laughs> to, talk, to talk about like how this fits into the big picture of, oh, you can only diagnose endo with surgery. Like, so I, I'm more speaking to that, that debate of like, where does yeah. this fit and how should we look at having a tool like this early on in, in women's lives? You know, you have tools that are designed for different things, yes. right? Like you're going to have some tools that are really, really good at diagnosing one condition, like the celiac blood test, right? That's really, really accurate, really great at testing for celiac. But if a doctor never orders that blood test, it doesn't matter how good that blood test is, right? And so what we're tackling is kind of that before place about what's stopping a doctor from ordering the right tests and making the right next steps for diagnosis in order to get to an official diagnosis or multiple diagnosis or whatever the case may be. Um, and so really pulling in the patient information and pulling in the clinical recommendations so that they know what the next steps are. Um, and in the endometriosis space, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of non-invasive diagnostic tools right now. Um, you have ultrasounds and MRIs, which can show some types of endometriosis, but not all. But, uh, you know, we really think our platform skills with innovation, right? Like if there is one day a blood test for endometriosis that's really accurate, then our platform can recommend that. When a patient is screened as likely having endo, it will recommend that blood test. Um, so we'll update our model and the recommendations as the clinical recommendations change and as new innovations come out. Um, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who are in the diagnostic space and building out these these tools or these tests. And yeah, adoption is a huge problem for them, right? Like getting doctors to actually prescribe or use their tool, even if they have really great studies showing how effective it is, is, is a hurdle because you have to educate all these doctors about this new tool. And so what our platform can do is really serve as this place um, where a new innovation can easily get in front of doctors um, once they've gone through the right regulatory hurdles. And, um, and then we'll be able to make sure every doctor using our platform has access to what the newest recommendations are. And obviously I could see this as being like, you know, the women's health EMR, honestly, <laughs> right? I mean, that's really what I could see the potential of this tool. I don't know what your reaction is to that. <laughs> I, I, I have really, um, I, don't, I have really mixed feelings about that for a couple of reasons. So one, um, that was the vision for the company originally, but as I've dove in more into it, like most of these conditions that we're doing for differential diagnosis don't just impact women. And even endometriosis doesn't just impact women. And so it's, it's really difficult to talk about something that's impacts so many women, but also is bigger really than just women. And so when you have it 
be focused too much on women's health, then people see it as like, okay, that's something OBGYNs will use. But it usually takes seven visits with your primary care before you're even referred to an OB. And so our tool, our goal is to get it adopted by primary care. And so having this be a tool to screen all patients with pelvic pain, regardless of gender, and get them the right diagnosis. Um, so yes, we are helping a lot of women, but also our mission is is beyond that, is focused more on that primary care and the screening of patients, uh, regardless of their gender. Wow. You make a valid point. Okay, so then I have a question about the primary care versus OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Who, who's seeing who? Because like, for example, for me, I started getting an annual physical with my primary care as I got older and was like, oh, I should probably getting blood tests and stuff like that. I don't feel almost 50, but, you know, apparently now I have to like do all these tests and, but I have, I've been, I'm a rule follower. So yes, when I was 18, I started going to the OBGYN religiously every year because of birth control pills. And I guess from a habit, being a rule follower, et cetera, I still go every single year. And so I'm so curious about this path. And I know that it's more than just women, but I guess for women's specifically who would have an OBGYN and a primary care, are you finding that a lot of women actually don't and tend to just go to the primary care? I'm so curious about that path. Great question. Yeah. So some people have their OBGYN be their primary care provider, right? And so they'll they'll just go annually to their OBGYN and get their pap smears or birth control or whatever they need. Um, But the majority of women do still go to a primary care provider. Um, And I think this is largely because of the shortage for OB. Um, There's a usually like a six to nine month wait list for an OB, depending on uh, if you're not pregnant, uh, depending on like what state you're in and if you're in a rural or suburban population. so, so there's a huge shortage of OB. So you see more and more being moved to primary care and as well as for advanced practice providers, right? Like nurse practitioners and um, physician assistants, like taking on more of this primary care role. And so these are people who probably don't have, I mean, OBGYNs get so little training in endometriosis, but like primary care and, and PAs and NPs receive like next to no training on right. these conditions. Um, but these are the ones that are really the front lines of the healthcare system and the ones hearing the first symptoms and the first signs of these conditions. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. Tell us why it is so important to know early. I mean, obviously, for the many, many, many endo sufferers that have severe pelvic pain, the obvious answer is we want the pain to go away, but it's more than that. Why, from a clinical perspective, is it so important to know early on? Yes, that's a really good question. So these are progressive diseases. So there's multiple stages, they get worse over time. And so the earlier they're diagnosed, the better the long-term treatment outcomes are for the patient. So a patient who's had undiagnosed endometriosis for an extended period of time, they are really, they they don't have good outcomes. And they'll probably never have full resolution of their pain. And that's just the reality because when your pain, when your brain has been used to being in pain for more than six months, you develop, I think it's called 
pain centralization syndrome. Um, And it really changes the way your body perceives pain. And that is really, really hard to treat. And it's under research. So we don't know too much about it. But we know is if a patient's having pain, and it's not resolved within six months, the patient has really poor outcomes long term. Um, So the sooner it is addressed, the better. Um, And then there's also the risk of organ loss, fertility, you see so many patients who will, you know, lose part of their digestive system or lose their ovaries or lose lose their uterus. Like those are really, really big impacts. Um, Even if you don't want to have children, losing an organ is a a huge deal and can have long-term health outcomes. You know, are there any misconceptions that you've been hearing about endo that are still around that we need to dispel? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or that we can't dispel quite yet because we need more data. <laughs> I'm curious if there's any interesting things you've been you've been hearing in this journey of yours. Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's so many misconceptions. It's like, where do you even begin? But, um, you know, I, I think that the thing that makes me the most sad, I guess, is just uh, there's a lot of trend in selling certain products to patients and that might be a supplement or a program or a diet that this is going to be the cure and as a patient like I would love for there to be a simple cure and suddenly everything will be better like I would love that but as a researcher like that's just not the case Um, and so I would really just always tell patients like if you hear somebody on TikTok, on Instagram, claiming to have the cure, the solution, like they're probably trying to sell you something and they're probably not being honest with you. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's the thing that makes me most sad is you'll see patients just spend a lot of money on on things that they hope will help. Um, but we need to be more honest and have more nuanced conversations about the risks and the benefits. And that's just difficult to do in our current society where we have really short attention spans and you have like a 20 second TikTok and it's hard to have a nuanced conversation. So I think podcasts like this are really great formats to actually be able to have more in-depth conversations about, about these important topics. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So, I mean, we've talked so much about your experience and, and, and this journey and trying to, to help women be diagnosed early on yet the, the tool is the education is available now, but the being able to have that perfect doctor appointment, um, isn't quite yet available. So I guess, what would your um, suggestion be for today, whether it's a clinician who is listening or it's a patient? Because I find that clinicians will say, I didn't learn this in med school, and they'll listen to the podcast. Then it's also women who are like, I'm so sick of this. (laughs) Help me get educated so I can be proactive with my my clinician. So for either of those or both of those, what what would be... You know your words of wisdom as you're continuing to 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 build less of health. Yeah. So for clinicians, like send me an email. Like we send a packet basically of of flyers for you to hand out to patients who have chronic pelvic pain or endometriosis to tell them about our app. It's completely free for the patients. Completely free for you to hand out flyers about the the platform. Um, would love to support you and work with you. Um, if you're interested in getting it integrated with your with your EHR and monitoring your patients, happy to chat that too. But that obviously takes a lot more advocacy and a lot of administrative approvals. But I think the place to start for for a clinician is to get 
this resource out to patients, right? And um, happy to send send over those flyers to any clinicians interested. And then for patients, I you know I think you can do the same thing of helping to add educate your own clinicians about new tools available, about what's helping you, what research you're reading. Um, you can do a lot to advocate. I, I will say I've even been putting into practice just all that I'm learning on the podcast and how I change how I talk to my clinician. And it doesn't always have to be an hour long appointment or even 30 minutes. It can be quick and it can be those quick exchanges over the electronic um, health record systems. Um, And I've been finding so much value in being like, this is what I heard. Tell me what you think. And it, it could be within that 10 minute appointment. It doesn't always have to be drawn out. And so I'm, I'm really happy to see that, you know, all these things are happening, like what you're doing and others, um, and even those listening to this podcast, it, it, that, that conversation is so important. But to your point, we also have to find the right person who's willing to, to have that dialogue, honestly. No, e- no egos here. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you, you, uh, you've wanted to add um, before we close out? Um. No, I, I think that thank you so much for, for putting this series together. I'm really excited to listen to all the other episodes. And, um, you know, I think there's the endometriosis. There's been so much happening lately. Yes. Um, so I'm really glad we're getting the right information out to the patients and um, going to help educate the community. No, absolutely. And thank you. And so stay tuned, everyone, because the rest of the series, it'll be interviewing um, someone who is a very strong um advocate for patients and who has a science background and we're going to be talking about the diagnostics and treatments i'll be interviewing a surgeon and then also someone who works with pelvic floor pt and yoga to help folks with um with dealing with pelvic pain so thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experience and um, congrats to you and I'm, i'm really looking forward to seeing how how you're doing in the future thank you so much have a great day Thank you for joining us on another enlightening episode of FemPower Health. No matter where you are in your journey, our website is brimming with content tailored to your specific topic of interest or life stage. Dive in and discover the resources and insights waiting for you. Your voice matters to us. And if you found value in this episode, please take a moment to write a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but it also helps others discover our podcast. By spreading the word, you're empowering women everywhere with the information they need to navigate their unique health journeys. And if this episode resonated with you, please don't keep it a secret. Share it with friends, loved ones, or anyone you believe would benefit from the information. Together, we can create a world where every woman feels supported, informed, and empowered. Remember, knowledge is power and FemPower Health is here to guide you and support you in every step of the way. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for informational purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Until next time.